0: and welcome to episode 76 of Africa Past and Present, our podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Allegi. And I'm
1: Peter Lim. Our special guest today is Dr. David Killengray Emeritus Professor at Goldsmith College and Senior Research Fellow at the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. Uh, he received his PhD from that university in 1982 and has written very widely indeed on African history, uh, including the books Africa and the Second World War with Richard Rathbone in 1986, Khaki and Blue with Anthony Clayton in 1989, another book called Africans in Britain, and no less than three books in the Studies in Imperialism series from Manchester University Press entitled Policing the Empire and Policing and Decolonisation both with David Anderson and Guardians of Empire with David Omisi. He edited A Stroke of Unbelievable Luck, the narrative of Isaac Farayebo, a teenage Nigerian soldier in Burma, and went on to co-author recently with Martin Plout, Fighting for Britain, African Soldiers in the Second World War, published by James Curry in 2010. As well as that, he co-edited with Howard Phillips, a collection on the devastating Spanish influenza epidemic of 1918-19. Uh, He has published widely in eminent journals, more recently on such uh, matters as black South Africans in Britain, African prisoners of war, African photography, black missionaries and prisons. In active retirement, he has nearly completed writing two books on black political activity in Britain before 1950. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Hello.
0: That's a vast scholarly span. How did you first get interested in the history of Africa? I first became interested
2: in Africa in the late 1950s. Suez is the seminal event in my life, the British invasion of Egypt in uh, the autumn of 1956. And uh, there was much going on when I was in the sixth form and then when I went into uh, university. Algerian War, Suez itself, which the Americans soon put a stop to. Apartheid, Central African Federation, Mau Mau, and a number of colonial wars in Malaya and Cyprus. I couldn't but be interested in Africa as a curious, radical-minded young man.
0: And today you spoke on black travelers in 19th century Africa at the African Studies Center's uh, weekly seminar series focused on the contributions of Africans, of African-Americans, and black Europeans as travelers, not explorers, as you pointed out, right? Uh, and writers to public knowledge, particularly in the Western world of Africa. Can you speak to this for the listeners?
2: Yes, I like to turn things upside okay. down. Uh, I remember giving this paper at a local history society, black travelers in 19th century Africa. And when I arrived, there was a post wrap. And it said, travelers in 19th century black Africa. I said, that's not what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about black travelers (laughs) in 19th century Africa.
0: Uh,
2: It seems to me there there are all sorts of things that are ignored, that are marginalized by historians. I've written on the flu pandemic of 1918, 19. Very little written at the time when I started being interested in that about the flu. Now there are any number of books. I wouldn't like to claim any responsibility for it, but at least one prods in the right direction. I've written on African soldiers and African policemen and African prisons, and it seems that people think this is a good thing to write on, I'll write on it. So there are any number of people who write on African aspects of African military history in the colonial period. Or The First World War was ignored, the Second World War was ignored until relatively recently, and yet these are major events in Africa's recent past. And now I don't think you'd find any books that would ignore them, but often it was the case of uh, writing about Africa, you left out the First World War, you left out the Second World War as if it hadn't existed and hadn't touched Africa, when it did in a very intimate sort of way.
1: Who were some of the more interesting of these uh, black 19th century travelers across Africa?
2: They're a mixture. Uh, Some are African Americans. Some are black Britons, like Thomas Birch Freeman, who was a missionary. Others are African, who may never have been outside of Africa, or if they had, it was only for a visit to North America or to Europe. Um, Men who lived in uh, Liberia, for example, who explored in the interior. Um, Some of them were just traders. Others were people who set themselves up using the skills that they had as entrepreneurs uh, cater for African travellers, to travellers in Africa. So that they would provide the, the knowledge, the means, the guns, the carriers, the food, whatever you wanted. It was a bit like going to a supermarket with a super agent there and you'd say, I want to travel into up to Lake Tanganyika. Um, that's the area I'm interested in. I've got two thousand dollars. What can you give me for it? So this was this was business for some of these people, but they're a fascinating group of people. And then there are African um, Christians, people like um, Samuel Crowther, the first bishop of the Niger, uh, who writes travel accounts, which are published in Britain in the eighteen forties and fifties. Thomas Birch Freeman who also has books published in Britain but there are also people who contribute to French and German geographical magazines and journals.
1: And Freeman is someone that you've been studying quite closely and have a a book coming out?
2: Well the book's not coming out because it's not written. I've contracted to write it though no money has exchanged hands but that's ever the academic world and uh, I hope that Thomas Birch Freeman's final travel account, which is in manuscript, I will be able to produce um, an edited version of it for the Hacklet Society in London.
1: So what were some of the roles of these, uh, we we could call them African intermediaries, what sort of things did they do for external travellers?
2: These were the people who knew the area. They may not have got book knowledge of the area, but they often had personal knowledge of it. They traders, or they'd been on a trading expedition, or even perhaps as a, 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 a factotum on one of these trading expeditions. Then they got to know the area, the geography. They knew the languages possibly. They knew c- they had contacts along ex- well-established trade routes, which crisscross Africa. Every part of Africa is crisscrossed by trade routes. So. And it wasn 't terribly difficult to travel in Africa. a lot of it is savanna land, so it 's not hacking your way through thick forests, as is often the image um, that you know the hentiish novels give of travel in Africa. Um, so these were people who had local knowledge which they were prepared to share but then you 've also got people who had had a formal European education, they spoke English or French or German or perhaps Arabic. They had a curiosity about the world. They knew about maps. They knew about the accumulation of knowledge that could then appear in printed form. And so they also were sometimes travelers. Then there are people such as George Kim Ferguson, who was an agent for the colonial government in the Gold Coast. And Ferguson travelled up into what is now northern Ghana and beyond, mm. planting the British flag, signing treaties, and had he had his way, modern Ghana would have had a much larger, bulbous northern area than it does at the moment. Uh, London wrote to the Governor and said, we're not annexing these territories, uh, we've had agreements with the French and so on. Uh, but Ferguson was a man who'd trained briefly in London. He was an excellent surveyor and map maker. His maps are models of presentation, and his reports are sterling in their quality, observing fauna and flora, customs, ethnography, geography. He was clearly um, similar to the kind of people that we would be expected to be surveyors of the first rank who were European.
1: And then there were others involved in these expeditions uh, from yep. the African side. Hmm. There were, what, porters and interpreters?
2: Yes, these people either had a, a head portering skill, which is no mean skill in itself, got solid muscles around your neck, or they spoke languages, or they were, could cook for 200 people from something that had been shot during the day. They knew the routes as well, and they had contacts. They were they were vital elements in virtually any expedition. There were virtually no European, or for that matter, even African-led or African-American-led expeditions that were just one man. Uh, that was a sentence of death, because you put yourself out in the wilderness. You had to do everything for yourself. It was. Um, a dangerous thing to do. So these expeditions are largely there at the-
1: They were African affairs. They you were know, African the enterprises, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. And you had Africans who served really as travel agents fitting up expeditions.
0: And you noted in your talk earlier today how invisible these African in, uh, intermediaries were in the narratives written by Europeans hmm. and Americans, usually white. Did the African intermediaries write about the Europeans and the Americans? And if they did so, what did they have to say about them?
2: Very rarely do they write about them in a critical way. There is a relationship, and uh, if you wanted to have what you'd got published, and you write. we all do it, we write it in a certain way. What's the market? Who's the readership? What do they want to read about? Diaries would be a different matter and there are not very many diaries unfortunately and also some African accounts that we know were written, intended for publication were subsequently lost and never saw the light of day which is a tragedy for African studies and for our knowledge of Africa.
1: Uh, You mentioned earlier the African-American component of this phenomena. Uh, Can you elaborate a little bit more about some of the African-Americans who came in particularly to West Africa and who also then wrote about the
2: region. I suppose the first African-American, or, or, although he might not be claimed as an African-American by some, uh, is Olidae Um He's uh, either born in West Africa or he's born in the Carolinas, um, which makes him a sort of African-American, but certainly lived in a, um, North America in part. So he writes about Africa and he writes about more than that. He writes about the slave trade and so on. But then there are people who are African-Americans who are keen to go back to Africa and they're surveying areas of the Niger, Lower Niger, to look for a, a settlement for back to Africa. Nothing actually comes of it. Where you do have some element of this is in Liberia. But the African-American travellers, Libra- uh, Liberians, um, are people who are travelling into the interior with an attempt to delimit the frontiers of the Liberian state and also to establish trade contacts to tap the trade of the interior. Benjamin Anderson is one of them. His Journey to Masuda, which is published in eighteen seventy, 1870s, a major book. Um, he has another subsequent journey, um, bits and pieces of that appear in Liberian newspapers, it's not published as a book until 1912, and then in Monrovia itself, not outside, it's a very rare book, and uh, it's published then to try and assert Liberian claims to territory as against French British claims, so it's part of the political football of drawing African frontiers in the period before the First World War, part of the scramble for Africa.
1: When you did speak today there was an interesting question from the audience, from a young Tanzanian student who made the point that of course uh, in connection with the supposed first person to get to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro that uh, you know in many cases these were places that weren't being discovered or in fact were being discovered by Africans all along Uh, so it strikes me that in a way you are turning the literature up on its head, you are uh, obliging historians and others to start thinking about uh, uh, the uh, the so-called discovery of Africa and if you look at all the textbooks that came out from the 50s through the 60s and 70s, it was always prefaced by the the discovery or the exploration of Africa by Europeans. Um, So it is really uh, very refreshing to think that we can now see Africans in their own right as travellers and in some cases there's an emerging literature, new PhD research on uh, Africans in the 20th century as travellers, which is very exciting. Um, Would you like to comment on that sort of historiographical progression that seems to be taking place?
2: Yes, I I don't like the term discover. Uh, We all discover things. Uh, We read and we discover. It's what life is about. And discovering implies a level of ignorance, which I suppose was true. Europeans were ignorant of Africa. African Americans were ignorant of Africa. Many still are. Um, you read, you discover, you travel and you discover. I don't use the word explore because early travelers in Africa, people like Mungo Park, David Livingstone, used the term travel. Mm. And I think that's a, a good term because we all go to places as travelers. Um, being first, discovering, that's the question is, that was asked of Baker by an African. Uh, when you found, where this river comes from? What are you going to do with it? <laughs> um, what's the purpose of what you're doing? Why are you doing it? Why get to the top? Um, well, that's a personal achievement, but to say I am the first—if uh, I do things—I might be the first David Killegrew to do it, but I'm not, certainly probably not the first person to do it. <laughs> so I'm—I'm I'm never happy with the words "discover" unless they're put firmly in a clear, clear context. I think the implication of discovering Africa was that it was unknown. Well of course it wasn't unknown. It was very well known and I think one of the things I'm trying to do here, and if I had more, if I had real linguistic skills I'd be mining the kind of uh, indigenous material to see what was done at the grassroots level by, and perhaps just reported in local publications and so on about the process of travel and in inverted commas discovery Mm. within Africa itself.
1: Refocusing uh, in a different way in this time back to Britain uh, another of your research areas uh, which sounds very interesting to me is uh, the whole area of African writers and their books in Britain and you're looking at a, a, a wide period from 1770 right up to 1950 Can you tell us uh, more about uh, such early writers and what did they write, why and for whom?
2: Many people who know a little bit about Africa uh, are conversant with the late 18th century writers, particularly Ollidaye Aquiano. But from 1770 to 1800, there are four or five people who are writing about Africa uh, in one way or another, directly or indirectly. In the 19th century, and for the first half of the 20th century, that's happened Till you get that beginnings, it's not a surge, but you then leads to the surge in African writing by Africans, and particularly novels. There are several hundred books that are published in Britain alone.
1: That many, it's a huge number. Yeah,
2: that are written by Africans, and they are about ethnography, there are legal works, they're about travel there's a novel or two, there's poetry, there's music, there's a lot of translation of sections of uh, books from the Bible, translations of Pilgrim's Progress for example, large numbers of those. And I just thought these were very interesting people because they had invariably came to Britain, they then had to find the money to have the book printed or published it's not difficult to find someone to print it, but if you publish it, then you've got a readership, and that's what. And who was it intended for? And were these books, in turn, imported back into Africa, or were they not allowed to come back into Africa because they were critical of colonial regimes, as some were? And were they only sold in Britain? So it's a very interesting uh, um, group of people, and it means working on the lives of individual writers. Publishers' records and letters and accounts which have not really been mined for this kind of material by Africanists. Um, And the business of financing and it also means looking at the missionary archives in detail for specific things, evidence about publication and translation. Um, Africans are also brought to Britain as translators. If you're translating the Bible into Kikongo and you've got an African working with you and you're going on furlough, leave, you bring him to Britain, that's happened. Mm. And uh, this happens again and again and again. And so you have Africans sitting down uh, somewhere in the middle of England with a a missionary on on leave and together they're, they're translating the Bible or passages of the Bible or prayer book
0: or catechism or whatever. Do you get a sense of audience in this world of African writers and um, publications that that's you're tracking? Um, yes, there's an intended target audience, but do you get a sense of the consumption side of this, if you will? That's and who are, who are these readers?
2: That's difficult. That's difficult. Uh, How do you go about trying
0: to uh, glean some of this information out from the sources?
2: You never know who reads books. Uh, reviewers hopefully <laughs> but that's <laughs> and our one or two people <laughs> <laughs> yeah if we're um, lucky to have them uh, around still but y- it's very difficult even today uh, you don't have posters going out and saying did you read this this book by um uh, this particular writer and what did you African writer and what did you think of him um, we we have people who do that now but they didn't do this in the 18th in sen- 18th century or the 19th century but you can look at the sales figures you can look at the numbers that were sold. You can look to see if there are people commenting on a book that they have bought. Mm-hmm. A lot of work has been done for the 18th century writers, but n- virtually nothing on on the writers in the 19th century and the, the early 20th century. And uh, I'm probably not going to add much on the 18th century, but I think I'm going to add a great deal on the 19th and the first half of the 20th century. Um, it is a difficult thing to assess. Um, we also know that... Uh, some people wrote books, had them published, and then got went bankrupt. I'm, there's one man I'm working on who was from Sierra Leone, came to Britain with ambitions to be the Mark Twain of West Africa. It never materialised, and he dies in poverty in 1919. But um, it was an attempt. To, this is a man called A B C. Um, Uh, Merriman Labour, L-A-B-O-R. And uh, he writes one book, published in 1909. We know a lot about that one. Um, And I hope that by looking in the same way at other writers, I can uncover, perhaps not as much, but a a good deal.
1: We look forward very much to that book uh, coming through. And uh, I'd like to come back to some of your other work that was specifically focused on imperial power and africans and you've done a wonderful job in rescuing from the condescension of history uh, police uh, soldiers and and so on and so forth Uh, but i'd like to linger a little bit on 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 the empire on the british empire and i've just come in fact from the basel conference on refiguring the south african empire Mm. which in itself is an interesting twist on what's more often just seen as the British Empire, or as uh, uh, both James Joyce and the founder of the African National Congress, Pixley uh, Semi, stated, the brutish empire. It might have been a typographical error, but perhaps (laughs) not. Um, So the question really is, how would you characterize in general? I mean, given all this vast work you've done on the relationship of the African to the empire, in all its different layerings and subtleties, how would you characterise African views of empire? And often in the literature, uh, particularly in after the end of the period that is often known as primary resistance, uh, in, uh, we, uh, and, and when much of Africa was still under uh, colonialism, we often see terms like loyalism. Uh, or loyalty, and uh, or um, particularly with black elites, or was it in fact a more complex bag of attitudes and responses to, to empire?
2: Yes, the response to empire, I think one must start asking the question, who knew about empire? And uh, one of the questions that we regularly set for students at the School of Oriental African Studies in African History was a a quotation usually made up, which went something like this. During the colonial period, Africa was governed mainly by Africans. Discuss. Uh, Large numbers of Africans never, ever saw a European and knew little of the fabric of the imperial state. Indirect rule and all that. Indirect rule, they saw the local African ruler. Now, he was certainly underpinned and subject to imperial rule. But you don't necessarily see that if you're a man in a village, a woman who's tilling the fields, who's collecting water. Why should you? Uh, And I think one has to be very careful in looking at even the educated elite and seeing in them those that early literature in that great phase when we wrote about nationalism, because that's what was happening in Africa at the time and therefore we wrote history which reflected that. You had to find the roots of nationalism which sometimes meant that you selected bandits and and, and, and clergymen merely because they protested at one thing or another as being nationalist. Take the National Congress of British West Africa with names like Kaisley Hayford, no mean slouch when it comes to… these people were not nationalists. I would call them patriots, I never used the word nationalist before about 1945. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, Nkrumah is a nationalist, but I think that uh, the NS National Congress of British West Africa and many of the other parties, uh, they are local talking shops. They are, have a, a high degree of self-interest for the educated elite. They have a disdain for those who do not belong to the educated, formerly educated elite. and. They are, if anything, patriot parties. They're not nationalist. They do not see a future uh, Ghanaian state in the, with the boundaries of, of the Gold Coast. Indeed, what they are is integrationists. They look at the French empire and say, the French have MPs in, uh, in Paris. Why shouldn't we have that? Mm. The French have uh, black army officers. What about Af- What about the British? Take Caisley hayford before the, F- the First World War he's talking about integration. After the First World War in 1923 he's speaking proudly about being part of the British Empire. What they wanted was a changed empire, uh, they didn't want to pull the flag down, they wanted it to fly on an even playing field, one which gave rights particularly to educated Africans. The others would follow because I think they were elitists in many ways. There are a few who think in populist terms, but it's not to, I think really, perhaps the interwar years, one or two people that come along and think in populist terms, and usually that, that's with another ideology, which is a Marxist one, which of course is not democratic, despite the the, the, the pious words about democracy. It's a different meaning. So I am very cautious in using the word nationalism for what was once called nationalist parties, looking back into the 19th century and seeing nationalists here and nationalists there.
0: This discussion reminds me of Laurent Dubois' work on the Caribbean and this notion of the citizens of empire. Um, What about the black South Africans in Britain that you've been writing about also recently? Uh, Very interesting, of course, Peter and I, uh, as uh, South Africanists, maybe are are even more interested in, in this particular recent project. Um, people like Sim and Mangena and and others. Um,
1: Alice Kinloch. Uh, Alice Kinloch, of
0: (laughs) course, so many of these um, activists uh, that uh, were working in Britain and had connections with these pan-African organizations that were emerging at the time. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the nature and quality of this kind of black political and intellectual Mm -hmm. activity um, late 19th century up to about World War II? Mm -hmm.
2: I'm a late comer to South Africa. Um, I went and taught at UCT in the early 90s and then I decided that this was a good thing to teach uh, at at London in my own college goldsmiths, but uh, I have written relatively little on Southern African history. I'm learning uh, and it's, it's a wonderful learning curve because it's such an exciting historiography. It's a rich historiography with rich archives. I think what interested me was that when I started looking at what had been written about many of the people who were involved in the early years of uh, the ANC and its precursors, Peter will be familiar with this and there are others who have worked on it, that there was relatively little that that was written about who these people were and I don't think you can really understand what kind of organisations they're forming until you know what kind of people they are. Part of the stimulus for this was looking at the Pan-African Conference which was brought together in London in 1900 and its precursor, the um, African Association set up in London in the the fall of 1897. And uh, they were just lists of names, and I thought, well, who are these people? And so some of the South African workers come out of that, and also you know, people say, you know, you're there, you're doing this. What about the South Africans? Have a go at that. I'm just trying to remember how I got onto Mangana, um, but I was in South Africa for several weeks, and I worked in the archives and found material clearly no one else had bothered to look at it. And then I looked in London and lo and behold there's a whole volume of parliamentary papers which is actually, he's the only African who has a, a volume of parliamentary papers with, with his name on it. Um, and then there's a lot of legal material um, and newspaper reportage. So there's no shortage of material to actually put flesh and bones on this man and say this is the kind of man he is. Another thing that has long interested me is that certain aspects of the ideology of Africans, particularly formally educated Africans, has been ignored by people who have written about it, less so African scholars, but particularly those who work on, say, Black Britons. And this is the Christian dimension. If you take the Pan-African Conference of 1900, I reckon that most of the people there are uh, Christian, active Christian in one way or another. There are a few who would have decried it. Even W.E. The Boys, when um, I mean, he writes on religion and he'd been a Sunday school teacher. I mean he, uh, the conference opens in prayer, closes in prayer. Now, it's Ch- as indeed
1: A and C meetings As yeah. indeed
2: A and C meetings were, and many of the other meetings of, of, of organizations, in uh, political organizations in Africa, it, it was the uh, how you did things. But it wasn't just doing it, it wasn't going, it's, it's not like the local authority in Britain, and there's been a lot of discussion about this, sh- should you have prayers at, it's formal, or prayers at uh, a grace at, at meals in an Oxford College. This is not mere formality, it's more than that. People got up and prayed extempore. Many of the people at the Pan-African Conference are clergy. Brown, Smith, Walters himself, Bishop of the AMEZ, um, and many of the others. Sylvester Williams had taught in a Sunday school, he went to prayer meetings, he spoke in evangelical churches and so on. Now that says something to me about what these people are thinking and where they come from and I know quite a lot about the religious history of Britain and it's to try and place them within that as well. Many of them had backgrounds in mission mission schools.
1: Could this also be seen as an early form of a network, even a an early solidarity network, because in the late 50s we have in England the anti-apartheid movement is formed, yeah. and then people like uh, Trevor Huddleston, who I met, uh, uh, became very prominent. Uh, Canon Collins. Canon Collins, and yeah. so uh, what you in, in another way perhaps this uh, 1900 meeting and the 1897 association can we envisage that as an early sort of transnational network of solidarity and. Another angle there that you've started to uncover is is the uh, is the gender dimension with Alice Kinlock, mm. who we hadn't really heard about. I think Andre Udendahl had a footnote or a brief mention to her, but in this recent article in the South African Historical Journal, uh, you've certainly fleshed out some of her interesting history and I think Heather Hughes at University of Lincoln is starting to write, uh, she gave a paper called The London Ladies mm. in Khamarone mm. in yes, June. Solomon and Mrs. Solomon the, and, and Cobden, uh, Unwin Jane Unwin. Uh, uh, Unwin Cobden. So yeah. it was this a network of solidarity well before the anti-apartheid movement?
2: I, I think it is, and I think there's a, 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 an international solidarity which starts off with the Evangelical Alliance, which is established in 1846, Unless you work on religious history, most people have never heard of the Evangelical Alliance. Yet it's global, it's transatlantic, it leaves out a large section of the American uh, church because it's slaveholding, which indicates where its ideology is. Um, I think that you can, one or two people have mentioned this. They, they've talked about uh, evangelical Pan Africanism meaning that it's, uh, a, a, it's it's a partly a Christian movement as well. Walters, when he comes to London, originally the idea of the Pan-African Conference was that it would take place in May. And they move it to July. And why do they move it to July? Because the World Congress of uh, um, Christian Endeavour was being held in London. Now, most people have never heard of Christian Endeavour, but in 1903, it has three million members globally. And uh, again, this is another whole area of, of movements that fascinate me, where, when you discover that they were household names or household terms, and yet they've been completely forgotten. If you read Pliky, for example, mm. um, Brian Willen's Pliky, mm. he mentions the Brotherhood movement. Yes, yes. Well, one of the things I'm working on with someone at Oxford is is a history of the, the Brotherhood movement. and. This has over 400,000 members by 1910, in Britain alone, plus branches in Europe and overseas. And it is radical, it's left-leaning, has a lot of members from the Independent Labour Party, it's um, dissenting, in other words it's it's not the established church, it is pacifist in its temperance, and those bodies and ideas all linked together, and it's also anti racist, and therefore it provides uh, uh, hospitality and platforms for visiting black people. The number of black people who get in contact with Brotherhood, when Plykey comes to London in 1914, where does he go first? First, he goes to the Brotherhood headquarters in London. Mm. When he comes back to South Africa, he's more involved in setting up a brotherhood movement in South Africa, yes. not in creating um, and building up the South African Native National Congress. No. This this is ignoring bits of history. I mean, Brian Willard a long time ago said, why has no one worked on brotherhood? Mm. Well, I'm trying to, and to try and unravel all the strands, and they're fascinating, and they involve all the time, black people.
1: And there's still a lot of hidden history to to unravel. Uh, I'd like to just uh, conclude by a brief quote from that article you published recently called Significant Black South Africans in Britain before 1912. And you write, understanding the lived experiences of past actors, great and small on the stage of history, and how they interacted with each other and responded to unfolding events, enables historians to see them in the processes of change. That central element with which history is concerned and which successive historians analyze, interpret, and reinterpret, unquote. And so I'm sure we're giving lots of food for thought for the historians coming after us. David Killingray, thanks very much for talking to Africa, past and present.
2: Thank you.
0: Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences online, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot, dot Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes, and other podcaster sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.